Hello and welcome to Gentle Touch. This podcast is a place where people can learn, discover and upscale mentally, spiritually and emotionally. This show is all about breakthroughs so get ready for some good vibes, realness and lots of information. You will be joined by me, your podcast host Alejandra Castro. Some of the shows will be just me and other shows will have guests open up new perspectives and views. My passion is to inspire and educate people who feel stuck. I will show you ways you can improve your overall health by sharing powerful tools that you can implement into your daily life. Let's get started. In today's episode, we have Kimberly. Kimberly is a liberation storyteller, speaker, problem solver and action taker. Kimberly, how are you? I am doing well. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Where'd you join us from? So I, I'm a little bit of everywhere, but right now I am working on my tour, which is currently in Charlotte, North Carolina. Excellent. Perfect. How long is the tour for? So the tour itself, uh, hopefully we'll have an opportunity to talk about the tour. It's called Black and Time Tours. It's an app. I know we'll get to that at some point today. Yeah. Uh, but the tour takes you about 45 minutes to complete, but it's permanent. So it's forever. I love it. I love it. Beautiful. Kimberly, tell me about your journey. Tell me, how did the, the speaking come? Was it a passion from a very young age? So how did your journey begin? Like, was you a speaker? Was this from a very young age or was you just curious? You started tapping into history and you was like, no, this, this, there needs to be more. I need to find out. Got you. So, you know, what's so interesting, Alejandra, I did not like history when I was in school. Um, It was my least favorite subject. I got the worst grades in it because I did not enjoy um, the way that it was communicated. And I never thought that there was anything else. I just thought permanently I just didn't like history. But my background is actually in marketing. So when I started college, I actually started in engineering. I have a a passion for science and math um, and technology as well. And when I started in that space, I realized going into chemical engineering that I actually hated that too. I didn't like history and I didn't like engineering. So what I what I did love was storytelling. And I'd always been a writer. I'd love reading. I mean, I would sit after my homework and like just consume multiple books at night. So I was wow. always a reader, always a learner. And so <clears throat> if we fast forward some years um, after I switched my major to marketing, I spent so so long telling everybody else a story, you know, helping brands to effectively communicate, um, helping organizations to transform their website to being this boring thing that nobody ever wants to read to converting in a way that they're like, wow, we weren't getting any leads from our website. And now we're getting, you know, you know, dozens a day. And these are, you know, million dollar opportunities. So I've been helping people tell stories for a really long time. I remember when I was maybe eight or nine years old getting awards for the poetry that I was writing. Wow. So it's telling stories has always been a part of my life. You know, I just never knew how to make money from it. Right. Like, how do you make money as an as an artist when so many of us growing up were told that, uh, you know, that might not be a viable career. There are limited opportunities that way. You don't want to be a starving artist. So that's why I was in engineering, because I thought I could make money. Well, it comes to find come to find out. I actually prefer being happy over making a ton of money. (laughs) 
So in that journey, um, I actually started my own agency for a while while I was while where I was representing writers. And so I helped writers to find opportunities. I helped them to, um, you know, get paid because many of them didn't know how to present themselves. And that was my specialty, like helping people to sell themselves. So I represented writers for a really long time. Um, and coming out of that, again, I wanted to be able to tell my own stories and eventually started my Instagram page. I, my Instagram page focused on food very early um, because I love cooking. That's one of my creative outlets. And then I started telling interesting stories, things that I found interesting. I didn't know if anybody else would like what I was sharing. Um, I was like, this is kind of cool. Do y'all like this? And they really liked it. And so that's kind of how this journey of being an Instagram storyteller came about. Um, but I've been speaking on stages since I was probably speaking or singing or dancing on stages since I was four. So that's just wow. been a part of my, my life since I was tiny. Wow, that's beautiful. How important is it to for an individual to tell their own story? Because sometimes we're caught up working for the nine to five. We're caught up working in this gig or, or whatever that may be in this sponsor that we learn to take on people's story and adapt them and tell them as if it's our own. How important is it to tell our own story? Yeah, I mean, I think I think everybody has a story to tell. When you tell that story is obviously up to you. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes that story might include um feats that you have overcome or, you know, trauma that you've experienced and uh, grown from. Um, but I don't think everyone has a responsibility to divulge everything that they're experiencing. I think there are some people whose job is to do that because that's something that they feel passionate about. But I will say, if you find that courage to tell your story, there's so many people who there's, if you find the passion or the, the energy or the courage to tell your story, then I think, think that you'll find other people who appreciate that, who can learn from that, who can grow from that. You'll be able to find community. And, and I think that's the thing that I found is, is showing up as myself every day gives me an opportunity to find community of, a community of people who like me for who I am. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Not for who I'm pretending to be. You know, we all have jobs, right? It, you know, some of us go to do the nine to five thing. And as you hinted at, we're required to be who we who they want us to be at that time um so for me i found freedom in being able to separate myself from that and say i'm going to tell the stories that matter and give voice to those who have not yet found the courage to speak up or who so, are not able um, to sorry say that again or, or who are not able to they could have yeah. i mean there are people in um there are stories that i've told where the people who never got to tell their story because they're no longer alive yeah right? Or people who could not tell their story in this country, maybe because they don't speak the same language. Yeah. Um, so I try to find stories that have opportunity for change, that have opportunity for um, us to rally around them. Um, the people on my page, on my Instagram in particular, they love to take action. You know, So right now, we're actually in the middle of a mini campaign uh, specifically around um, Confederate flags. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Confederate flag, but it is a racist symbol very much like um, swastikas. Um, but there is nothing in the U.S. that is illegal about flying these flags. And there are some organizations that have actually decided to fly these flags over major interstates uh, or highways. Um, so 
I happened to be on the highway driving in a state that I hadn't driven in a long time um, and just saw this big Confederate flag. Like, can you imagine being a Jewish person going down the highway and seeing a big swastika just flying? You're like, what? Like, that just doesn't make sense. And that's how it felt for me. So I recorded it and um, decided that we're going to take action. You know, I know that there are people within the community in the state the um in South Carolina in particular that have already attempted to you know they've gone to legislation and so I have a creative approach that's a little bit different we're going to try to actually take over we are going to take over the billboard next to the flag um wow for an entire year you know so right now we're raising funds for that we're about I guess maybe two, half of the way there that we how much you know, is it want to be but I'm sorry, say again. How much is it to be able to? So for the entire year, for the entire year, it's sixteen thousand for the year, um, and it's ten thousand for half the year. So we're setting our it's first. It's worth it to get the whole year. For the whole year, exactly. Okay. So for the whole year to take over that to take over that space, so that we can educate, right? Because there's so many people who just think that this is a historic flag. You was like, you know, don't crush on our ability to have free speech. Okay. You can have free speech in your own house. You can have free speech in your own yard. But this is a 90 foot flag that is towering over the trees in the on the highway, wow. and we have to pass it every day. Um, and, and to me, it's, it's a, it's, it's meant to drive fear. It's not meant to just be historical. Like we can honor the history of people who fought in the revolutionary war without terrorizing the people who, um, had negative experiences from, from that period as well. Wow. Beautiful. I, I love, I love your approach. I love, and it's just knowing from you, we learned that it's okay to do it in the way we want to, where it be storytelling, where it be creative, where it be, um, just being passionate and owning our light in the way that how can we use our passion to educate, inspire and heal others. I love that. Tell me about Zelda Wynn Valdez. So Zelda is, oh man, so she's a, a wonderful, she's a wonderful person. Um, she recently passed away, I guess in the last maybe 10 to 15 years. She, I decided to tell her story because I was completely surprised when I learned about this information. So we're all probably familiar with the Playboy Bunny uh, waitress outfit. We've seen the bow tie, the, yeah. the, um, the, the, the short, uh, what do we call it? Uh, leotard, I guess that they wear with the, the the kind of the busty outfit, you know, and I I know everybody has their opinions about, you know, how they dress, but it's an iconic symbol. Right. And I learned that Zelda actually was commissioned to design it. And Zelda is, um, a black woman, a Cuban woman. Um, her dad's Cuban, her mother's African American. And, she designed it. And I was like, that's so lovely to know. Um, and I think people were surprised, you know, finding that information out just like I was. And, um, that's actually how I decided to tell stories. Like anything that makes me go, you know, (laughs) like (laughs) I'm going to tell this story and and people resonated with it. You know, some people were excited. Some people were like, but we don't like playboy. I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. (laughs) What doesn't, what matters is this woman was commissioned and her work is still around today you can still see her work today i saw some of the beautiful dresses she made for some of the celebrities as well and um was she she one of the first ladies to have a boutique she was so in 
in Manhattan. So she was, we believe that she was the first black woman to have her own boutique in Manhattan, which is a pretty big deal given everything that we know about um, segregation and opportunities, especially for black women or women in general, honestly. Um, but her having her own boutique and um, creating very iconic looks for women in Hollywood you know, very like form fitting sort of tops, kind of that a line type of dress. Um, she, if you've, if you've kind of looked into the looks of the forties and fifties and sixties, like you'll remember her iconic style. Um, and I mean, I think she deserves her own movie to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Just her so own documentary, can... her own Netflix series. Absolutely. I think people need to know who she was and her journey, her, her parents coming out of Cuba into America and kind of being immigrants here. And that story is, you know, part of it. And then um, Zelda, kind of her, Zelda's mother actually was um, a dressmaker in Cuba. And so when she came over, like she had taught Zelda everything that she knew. And so kind of seeing that mother to daughter story, I think that's another layer. Um, Working with all those celebrities and like seeing her, um, you know, work on television. Like, I think there's so much to it. And I, I just really feel like she deserves her own documentary for sure. I love that. How important is it to know our history? Oh, wow. Knowing our history is, is key because for, I can say for me, I didn't know much about my history because I did not, I was not taught it directly. Um, my parents, my aunts and uncles would give me supplemental materials to kind of study and read on, read on my own, but they weren't really real to me, not in the way that they are now. And the reason that knowing your history is so important is because so often we run into repeating the exact same things over and over. And sometimes it feels like these, it feels like these things are new and it feels like, like, wait, where did this come from? Like, why are people behaving this way? Why is this injustice this way? And, and so much of it is already has already been explained. Like we have the books, we already know what happened. And so much of it is being repeated. But I think we have to ask the question. There's certain things. I'll give an example. So I had a speaking event uh, in New York City about two weeks ago. And one of the things that came up was uh, the demographics of a particular area in the United States. We were talking about how difficult it is in uh, Denver, Colorado, or in certain places in Oregon to hire people of color. They're like, they're just not very many people of color who are there. So our pool is very small. And so when I was speaking to that person, I said, well, do you know why the pool of people of color is so small? And they was like, well, the, the population is just that way. And I'm like, no, no, the population is not just that way. It's intentionally that way because of history, yeah. because of racial racist laws that prevented people of color from being there. Racist laws that forced out people from their land whether it was indigenous people or um, uh, racist head tax or poll tax that kept people from being able to afford to live there or um, racist laws that would cause people to be abused for living in those places in Oregon territory, for example, which includes like Idaho, Montana, there are certain laws that um, if you were black and free and you lived there, Oregon territory didn't want you to live there. And so there was a law that said that they were allowed to whip you 39 times until you left. So black people and other people of color just didn't go. 
because they heard about these laws. This is why that area of the country is so white. It's not because people don't want to be yeah. there. It's because the community never invited them. So when we talk about things like anti-racism, when we talk about things like how do we play an active role in anti-racism, when it comes to an organizational perspective, we have to recognize that history in order to make change. It can't just be, oh, all we're looking at is the abuses from police. Like we have entire systems that have been built on racist ideas and racist um, uh, laws that were implemented to protect the needs of white people. So we have to remember that and know that history in order to understand how we got to where we are today. And sometimes we, if we don't have the information, we don't have the knowledge, we, are, we don't have the wisdom, we just be like, yeah, but it's so hard and we don't know the reason. And it's knowing that if we go back, there were rules, policies, laws as to why it is the way it is. And in order to know our history, that's the only way we can make change or else it be, it's, it's a cycle that gets repeated, repeated over generations. Um, touching on the same subject, um, tell me about Lake Lanier in 1912. Mm. So if I'm not mistaken, um, Lake Lanier around that time, it wasn't a lake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there were a community of people that lived there, uh, predominantly black people yeah. who lived there. And there was a series of events that led to a, a white mob um, actually taking over that land. Um, so it's interesting because I've lived in Atlanta for a long time and there's so many stories about people passing away in the lake. Like there just seems to <gasps> always be some trauma at the lake, like just always. And people have speculated that there is a spiritual energy that's there because of the, the trauma that was enacted in that place. Can you um, feel it? No, I do not go to Lake Lanier for okay. that reason. <laughs> my um, my friend is spiritual, and sometimes there's areas where you feel a lot of anxiety. And mm -hmm. um, she says she felt that in Vietnam. As soon as she's got off the plane, she's like, "Hell no!" And it's because <laughs> of the history. It's because of yeah. the history. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting because I think I don't talk about this much on my page, yeah. but being connected to spirit is really a big part of who I am and how I tell the stories I tell. Um, and the reason why very often I'll actually physically go to the places where I'm researching and studying. Um, to give you an example, um, I was in a car with a friend of mine um, and we were driving through Texas and I had no idea where I was. We were just driving. He was taking me to some mountain that we were going to walk up and, and I was going to fail, but we were going to attempt it anyway. Um, so we were driving and then I had all of this just really bad energy. Like I could feel it. Like, and we were just driving. I'm like, I don't like where we are right now. I feel like there was a lot of death right here. And I started saying this out loud, but my friend, my friend knows me. So he trusts me. He was like, okay. And like, I'm sitting here and I'm, and I'm like, what is this? I feel, I feel it. Um, and then I think within a minute, did you get anxiety? Like, did you, I don't know how to explain. You the begin feeling. to get anxiety or. Well, it's, I didn't feel, I don't, I can't articulate what I felt. I just know that I'm familiar enough with it to know what it is. Yeah. Because yeah. there's so many, like feeling anxiety can mean so many different things, right? You know, feeling discomfort can mean can go in different directions. Yeah. What I knew was that I was feeling a lot of death. I knew that a lot of people had died in this space. And so as we go down the street, just a, a few moments more, like not even a minute, we look over to the right and there was um, a monument because there was this like terribly bloody battle that had happened like right here. And I was like, 
told you. <laughs> and like, this was a place I'd never been before. Like I didn't, I don't even, I can't even tell you right now where we were because we were driving from Austin to some mountain and I had never driven here before. Um, but it's that sort of thing that kind of helps to point me in the direction of like, this is something that you need to know. This is something that you might want to study. It's because I have these kind yeah. of moments as I'm going into these places. I love that. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. How do you protect yourself? Because sometimes if we don't know, the emotion can take over us, right? And then Absolutely. we're just like, yeah. wow, how, how how do I separate this pain, this hurt, this trauma from what I'm feeling now in order to give my speech, in order to get on with my life? Well, I think it's two parts, right? So the first part is when I'm studying things that are traumatic, yeah. um, I often will feel overwhelmed with the stories. Um, and sometimes I just sit with that. And I'm okay with feeling those emotions because I know it's temporary. Like I didn't live this. I know that this is temporary as I'm writing this story. Um, like I just, I'm, and there are m numerous times where I have like read about things that have happened. There was one story about um, people in Guatemala who um, had been infected with STDs. And I heard that and I was, and I was upset about it. And then I read that they infected children and I broke down and I was just like, I can't, like imagine the life that you have taken and the, the enjoyment and the, the medical bills and the experiences that you have taken away from a child, you know? And like, I just, I broke down and I, I just was like, I, I can't. And so what I try to do is, as I'm telling that story, telling that story is bring that energy to the video as much as I can without bursting into tears. Um, the same thing sort of happened when I was studying about Atabanga. You know, he was a, a, um, a pygmy, which is a very short person um, who was treated like a zoo exhibit. Not that zoo exhibits are good. They're, they're bad too. Like no one should be no one, one up in, a cage. Yeah. in a cage. Um, but he was a human in a cage and people were just ogling him and he really just wanted to go home to his family. Like they had taken him from his wife and children. And then by the time, you know, activists got him free, it was a period where he could no longer um, go home because of some um, trade issues oh, no. that were being had in the country and war. So he couldn't go home. And so I think he ended up, if I'm not mistaken, um, taking his own life. <gasps> it was just a really, really sad story of just like, we took away like his humanity to where he didn't even want to be here anymore. You know? So it's that sort of thing that just like, it just wrenches my heart. And so I'm, I'm, you know, literally torturously writing these stories. Um, but then I also, to your point of the question of how do you separate, once that story is done, I'm no longer consuming a lot of content online. Like I don't, even with my own page, my own social media, I don't follow a lot of people who tell a lot of negative stories. I don't follow really much of anything. I don't watch the news. I love comedy. I love cute animals and babies. I, I watch videos of people making cool fingernail designs for, for nails. Yeah. Like I do not, cons I do not stay there. I take care of myself and I separate myself. I study my story. I present my story. And then I come out of that and I, and I live my life. But to, to, to talk about what it's like when you're having those experiences just 
in real life and it has nothing to do with a particular story, sort of like the, the Texas story where I'm driving in Austin and I'm feeling those moments. I know these are not my feelings. These are the feelings of people who have passed on, people who have experienced um, trauma, who experienced um, injustice. And I am temporarily feeling what they felt as a way for them to communicate their story to me. And I know that that doesn't last long. And so I'm like, okay, thank you for sharing that. And then we keep moving. So for me, it's a little bit of compartmentalization of knowing, okay, while I'm in this moment, I am in it. When I am not, I am not. Wow, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's it, and it's not easy. It's not easy to to be able to deal with it. And it slowly has to become like a skill, a skill to know when it's time to focus, when it's time to leave. We've done this story. We've We've given voice to the people. And it's just known, especially because me, I didn't know I was an empath. So mm. I could touch people and feel their pain. And I was like mm. really struggling. And then I got help. And then they told me about protection techniques. And you need to understand that it's not your pain. You need to give it back to the individual. They need Absolutely. whatever that may be. So, um, yes. Um, Kimberly, what is a sundown town? Mm. So a sundown town has a few definitions. Um, but centrally is an area where black people, indigenous people, other people of color were not allowed um, after dark, uh, generally in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, probably a little bit into the 70s, maybe some now actually, <laughs> um, but they're not allowed in the, in the town for a few reasons. One, either legislation. So there's like a, a law that says if you are written down, you can't be here after this time um, or laws that are they're not actually laws, but they are known by the people. So they're not um, legislation, but it is something that they practice with the in participation with like the police where they will make sure that the black people are, are out of that town all the time um, or something that the residents themselves will will manage. So to give an example, <clears throat> you know, the sun goes down at, let's say, 7 p.m. Yeah. You're out and about. You're in a town. You've gone to the next town as a black person to go grocery shopping. If you're in a sundown town, it's important that you are no longer in that place by the time the sun goes down because you are at risk of um, being harmed by the white residents. And so organizations or rather the cities or the counties or, you know, those areas of the state manage the, this, uh, these sundown towns with either legislation or with the in partnership with the police or just the residents themselves forcing people out. So it's a very dangerous thing, especially if you're traveling, especially if you're going to a place that you've never been before at that time. There's even something called the Green Book that uh, was created by a gentleman, I think, who lived in New York at the time. Um, I think it started maybe in the um, 30s, where he put together safe places for black people to travel. Oh, and that, that book would be, you know, disseminated so that you would know this is a town that you can go to if you're in North Carolina, if you're in Virginia, you're traveling in the South, New Jersey, wherever, here's a, a hotel that will serve you that's safe, you know, and it's sort of like a the the underground railroad in a way, but in a book form. Um, so the crisis was a, a magazine that had, um, places like that. And then also the green book was an actual physical book. I actually have a copy of the green book here. Wow. Beautiful. It's so, it's so nice to, to, to know people that these things exist, right? Because in so much darkness, there has to be light in one way mm -hmm. or form. Light has to be shown what, whatever that may be, where it be a little bit of dim light to, mm -hmm. to, until we get into a position where, okay, we're beaming now, like 
like yeah. we're getting this book into many people's hands um going on to, oh there's also sort of video on your social media where we have a female and she's speaking about her grandfather and the alarm it, like something similar to the sundown town so and her grand like she her grandfather oh, would listen yes. to the alarm yes. and she's speaking about this so so is this yes. still happening today yes. or was that 30 years ago so actually both so yes this was so the stories that we're talking about now were you know maybe 60 years ago of these sundown towns that existed and and technically right now they're illegal but there are still remnants of some of those stories um that still exist and there was a woman whose story i ran into where she talked about her grandfather who mentioned an alarm that still was being played in the town where they lived and the, the alarm used to be a signal for the black people to go to leave the main town and return to the outskirts um and that's what it started as I believe that the alarm was repurposed or they said it was repurposed to just be an alarm to, I don't know, let you know what time of day it was, but it didn't begin that way. Yeah. Um, I, I cannot tell, I mean, because I, I, I was not alive at that time to like know yeah, the yeah, history exactly. and have the conversations. Like we don't really know exactly what happened and how it happened and what changed or what didn't. But we do know that there are multiple alarms that go off all around the country at different parts of the day, um, that used to be used to tell people that it's time. If you're black, if you are Asian, if you are indigenous, if you are Latino, you have to go. Um, so we know that that exists. Um, there are certain states, I can't remember the name of it, but if you happen to, to go to my Instagram, you'll, you'll find this video where there was one particular state where the indigenous people, um, were like, this is, this alarm is racist. We remember why it was used. We've said that it's wrong and it needs to be changed. It needs to be turned off. Um, and the legislations, the governors actually ended up implementing a law that said there were no alarms that can that any alarms that have racist history can no longer be used um at that same time they ended up just changing the time by like 30 minutes oh. it still existed but they at least acknowledged in part you know we recognize this racist history so we talk about sundown towns as i said as if they were some time ago and they were but again some of the remnants still exist now Wow. Tell me about um, Tony Alamo and the jackets worn by celebrities. Oh, my word. <laughs> so there's this uh, man named Tony, Tony Alamo. Tony Alamo uh, was a fanatical preacher, if that's the right word. Fanatic preacher. I don't know. He was he was dramatic. He ended up using his platform to draw in members to what became a cult. Um, he actually started finding membership by targeting the unhoused in Los Angeles, um, offering them food and shelter to come and stay at his house compound um, for food and shelter. And then to he also started targeting women who were considering abortion um, and said, well, if you have your kid, we'll, you know, you can come live with us, we'll feed you. But the problem was when the people got there, it wasn't just that they were learning about Jesus or, you know, whatever else. They were being brought into an abusive situation. 
um, they were being brought into a compound where not only were they being forced into labor so that Tony can make money off of these clothes, but their children were being abused physically and sexually, young children. Um, Tony Alamo also committed several financial crimes um, to which the FBI, IRS, and all of them got involved yeah. eventually. Um, he also went to jail for um, uh, sexual crimes against children as well. I remember reading about how he would invite young children into his bedroom and he had a dollhouse in there for them to play with um, in advance. I guess that would be the foreplay. I don't know. It was awful. Um, but these jackets, these jackets that came from this compound were popular. They, the compounds were the, not the compounds, the uh, jackets were worn by celebrities they're very, if you see the jackets, the Tony Alamo jacket, if you Google it right now, you're probably like, wait a minute, I remember Dolly Parton wearing that jacket. I remember Miley Cyrus wearing a jacket like that. I remember ASAP Rocky wearing a jacket like that. And this isn't to say that they knew anything about the abuses of you know, what was going on. It was just fashionable to wear these jean jackets with the city names on the back and they were like super bedazzled. But you learn later on that these bedazzled jackets, these, um, uh, what are they called? The rhinestones that were put on there were put on by children to the point that they were working 14 hours a day with wow. their fingers bleeding while they're sticking on these rhinestones. And so the cult still exists, even though um, the jackets are no longer produced and Tony is no longer there. Um, the cult still exists. And one of the things that um, I have been working on is attempting to get these jackets removed from all of the resellers. So we've had success first getting them removed from Grailed. Grailed responded immediately, like, this is not okay. We consider this um, inappropriate. And they removed all of the Tony Alamo jackets from their reseller platform. We're still waiting on um, eBay? eBay and Poshmark okay. to respond. They have not. Um, what about so I think it's Deep, is Depot big in, in the U.S.? So yeah, we, we have that. I don't know. I did not check there to see if any of the Tony okay. Alamo jackets were there. You know, I'm I'm of the I'm of the the school of thought that we don't have to erase history to um, address an injustice. Yeah. So I'm not saying that we need to go out and burn all the jackets, but it would be better for the jackets to be in a museum so that we recognize the history. We don't forget the lives that, that were lost and were impacted, but we also don't continue to make money off of people's trauma. So I think there's a balance in that. Um, so if you have a jacket, you know, maybe donate it to the Smithsonian. You know what I mean? Something like that to say, okay, this what, is a part what is of the Smith What is the Smithsonian? Smithsonian is sort of the overarching organization that okay. handles um, uh, lots of museums. Like, so they have, like the biggest, largest museums in, in the States. Um, they also have a, 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 a channel, um, a network actually on television where they produce television shows. Um, so we don't have to erase the history. You know, we want to honor the people who yeah. um, went through this and not forget their stories. But we, again, we don't need to keep making money off of their experiences. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Kellogg. Yes. John Harvey Kellogg. Okay. Got you. So John Harvey Kellogg is the brother of William Kellogg 
And if you recognize the name Kellogg, there's a reason because of Kellogg's cereal um, and all the products that come underneath that. Um, well, Dr. Harvey Kellogg, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was actually a, um, was racist. He believed in eugenics, which is the erroneous scientist, so-called pseudoscience that suggests that, uh, black people and other people of color are, um, physically different or racially, uh, inferior. Um, so he had all of these practices that, uh, would lead to the eradication of, um, BIPOC. Long story short, um, he actually had a center for wellness, which I thought was very interesting. Um, Sojourner Truth, which who is a black um, abolitionist, actually was visited the center, which is weird. <laughs> but um, he was kind of the the leading the thought leader at the time around wellness and, and the things that you need to do to be healthy, including eating a vegan or vegetarian diet and all of this. Um, but he was also very racist. And um, I have that story is it was pretty interesting to to uncover about uh, Dr. Kellogg. He I don't know. Was he also involved in um, sexual se uh, children sexual abuse? He was actually, um, he believed that young girls who were masturbating or young boys who were masturbating should, um, be harmed to keep them from continuing to masturbate. So basically he believed the young girls should have their clitorises burned, um, which I was like, that's madness, <laughs> you know, because if, if it didn't work to tie them up, you should make it so they can never have any sexual pleasure ever. Yeah. Um, and there were also things that he did to the young boys. I can't remember exactly um, what that was. Was it to remove the, um, do a circumcision without any <gasps> anesthesia? Without anesthesia. You're right. Oh my word. Yes. So circumcision without anesthesia. Wow. Like, and these people, these are young. These are like, 17 and under anybody living in your in your household that's a kid he believed that masturbation led to um it was like the the worst sin that you could do to your body i, I can't remember but is he the one that also believed that if a girl started the day she started her period was the day that should be the age of consent or is so, that different or am i mixing it with I someone think that's else? a different guy i okay. think that's the guy that's a different guy who had something to do he was connected to the city of Boston and there was a, a completely different product that he worked on graham crackers. The guy, so that guy, his name was, I think Sylvester Graham. He believed the age of the consent was the girl's first period, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he also, he wasn't racist if I'm, I'm not mistaken, but he did have this whole thing about masturbation, but he got that from um, Harvey Kell or no, I think Harvey Kellogg got it from him. Um, and then kind of continued on. So I think Sylvester started it with the invention of the graham cracker because they believed that like seasonings or anything like that, any kind of flavor would like arouse you. So you had to eat foods that was bland. That's how they ended up creating Kellogg cereal because they wanted to create bland food for people. And they like messed up some grains or something. And it was like, oh, this is not that bad. And they ended up making it. Wow, powerful. Thank you for that, Kimberly. Kimberly, tell me about you. Tell me about your tools. Tell me about what projects you have coming on. 
Yeah. So, you know, thank you for, for asking about all those stories. Like I tell so many stories and I can't always remember. It's a so lot of information. And, and even with the, um, Dr. John Harvey, I got it mis mixed up because I looked into one, another post you did. And it's like, he married like 10 underage girls. And then he, yeah. he embodied his wife's body at like in the complex in the chateau yeah. and it was just like there's so, there's, much, so many there's so much information that if you don't know you'll get it like you'll get you'll start to intertwine everything so definitely oh, go over so to weird. her page and look at her post yeah so please do my instagram is at it's kimberly renee and like yo it you'll probably binge watch so much because there's so much information there um so many interesting stories but what I've done recently is I've created an app called Black in Time Tours. It's available right now in the, the Apple and Google Play Store if you just search Black in Time. And what I wanted to do is create a, um, a permanent exhibit specifically for uh, black stories, for indigenous stories that have that are routinely erased. Um, and I wanted to make it accessible to everybody. And so if you can imagine a history podcast or an audio book meets a historic tour, it can be taken in person. It can be taken online. And eventually I want it to become the destination when people want to go to new places and know about what actually happened that isn't whitewashed. So <clears throat> the first tour city is Charlotte, which is why I'm still in Charlotte right now. Um, the first city is Charlotte and I take people on a journey from how Charlotte kind of began, uh, who was here before the Europeans colonized the space. And then we move into the forming of this particular area and who were the major players? What kind of legislation were they enacting on others? And it's not just like, how did the city form? It's like, how did this impact other people? Because so often we hear the stories about the white people and the amazing things that they did. And, you know, this was the governor and, you know, this is how much money they made. But most of these people were enslavers. Most of these people were building their wealth on the backs of black people. The city itself, the infrastructure was built by black people, but we don't hear that as much. Yeah. So we take that journey and then we sort of end um, talking about an area called Brooklyn within Charlotte, North Carolina that was eradicated in the 1950s, 60s and 70s due to a, a federal program called urban renewal, where the federal government gave counties, cities, states money to so-called improve areas um, that they considered blighted. And unfortunately, um, the area that they considered blighted was an all black community called Brooklyn. That community was home to more than 200 businesses. It had more than a thousand homes. Um, and it was a very, it was maybe five to seven square blocks. It was very small, but it had such rich history there. Yeah. It had doctors and teachers, lawyers, real estate agents, insurance agents, like any and everything. It was, it was a city within a city. They had its own, it had its own grocery store, multiple stores. But it also, it was also considered, you know, quote unquote, the hood. It had um, what we would consider like projects now, or it had um, very low income housing. But what's interesting about that low income housing is that it was owned by white people and the what? white people were not taking care of these the homes. And because they weren't taking care of these homes, they were infested with fleas. They had roaches. They had all of this, but it wasn't because of the people that were living there. It's because the white people were not taking care of the, of the spaces. But because of that, or in light of that, 
it wasn't the white people who weren't taking care of the homes that felt the most the brunt of this. It was the black people who owned their home, you know, on the other side of the street, whose, you know, homes were, you know, they had nice front porches and were well designed and maintained. Like yeah. everything wasn't the same. It was a it was there were there were poor people. There were people who had money. They all lived in the same area. And they say, well, there was a lot of crime. Well, perhaps because the area wasn't taken care of. So they forced all of these people out. Um, and there's very little that still remains. It actually is mostly parking lots and hotels now. Okay. Um, but I kind of go into that and give people some perspective about um, things that are still happening. Because even in Charlotte, um, there were about 100 business owners that were displaced just about four years ago. And it resurfaced the conversation around Brooklyn. And it made me. It makes me think of what you said before about knowing your history. It's like this already happened once before, yeah. where an organization or the city decides, oh, we want to turn this yeah. into um, county, a county space, industrial space, and we're going to move out all of the the black entrepreneurs. They did it again. You know, it happened in the 1970s, and then it happened again in um, around 2009 ish, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so. I really enjoy creating this tour. For me, it is my love letter to my community. Um, it's full of, it's not just me talking, it's it's full of, of sounds. My goal is to really just take you back there, to take you so that you feel like you are actually standing on the street, even if you're not standing there, that you're hearing their voices. Um, there's oral history from the people who actually lived it. So you're not just hearing me, you're hearing from them. Wow, beautiful. If for the individual that's in Charlotte, how does it work? Because I know you're super busy. Is it like you, you allocate a block booking and from this state to this state, you'll do the tours or more people will do the tours? How does it work? So you can take the tour whenever you're ready. So I'm physically here f because of different reasons. Um, you know, I am planning on, I'm taking some additional photos. I'm, I'm expanding the app, but you don't need me to take the tour at all. So you download it onto your phone. Um, you find the first location, you go to the first location and then the app will guide you to the rest of the, to the rest of the stops. Wow. That's so amazing. That's so beautiful. I love it. Tell us about your speaking engagements. Um, I don't know if I have anything to say about that. Can we skip that question? Or are you focusing more on the app? Yeah. So, right. So the, I mean, I have speaking engagements. I mean, I do, but I don't know what to share about them because most of the speaking engagements I get are corporate. So oh, it's not like it's corporate. something that I can invite people to. Okay. Okay. So that's mostly like businesses. Do you speak in schools? Right. So I have. So I've, you know, I've spoken at multiple colleges. Um, I'm always open to the opportunity. Um, I was asked recently to go to Alabama to speak to uh, some of their students. Like, we'll see what comes of it. Um, you know, I take them as they come. I'm not I can't necessarily say that that schools are my primary. Um, my passion is honestly helping organizations to do a better job at um, playing an active role in anti-racism. Because I think so often we spend a lot of time talking about individuals and making sure that, you know, let's check our biases and all of that is great. I think it's foundational, but it's the organizations that, that uphold, maintain and fund policies. And so if we can't actively engage with organizations, then no, none of the systems will change because they're the ones that keep them alive. It's not just, you know, me and you and other people, individuals, it's organizations. Yeah, 100%. Um, for, the, for the individual that 
loves what you do and wants to begin and wants to make a change, how can they do that? Yeah. So I always recommend that if you are interested in learning more about history and the stories that I tell, I would say, you know, continue to engage with my Instagram um, at it's Kimberly Renee. I would say also to be proactive in finding books to read to support the things that are most interesting to you to help you. Um, I don't necessarily have a reading guide. Um, I, I prefer to recommend that people, again, take ownership themselves of their own education the same way that I do, as opposed to having the yeah. expectation that somebody else is going to feed that to them. Um, and then if, if they're enjoying my content and they're learning from my content, um, they can always become a subscriber on Instagram or Patreon. Um, they can also gift or tip or, you know, whatever, whatever's in their heart to do. Um, specifically right now, what we're working on is the, uh, the flag campaign trying to take over the billboard. So any support to help, um, educate around that, to draw some more media attention, um, because it's gotten pretty quiet around, um, around these parts when it comes to the Confederate flag and, and trying to make change in that. So that's kind of the, the biggest call to action that I have right now. Beautiful, beautiful. And as well, it takes one thought, one action, and it takes a whole community. Like they say, it takes, um, it takes a tribe to raise a child. So just by everyone coming together and be able to, okay, we're going to put the thought, the intention and the effort, we can make something so beautiful happen. Um, Kimberly, what is your favorite book? Oh, oh man, you know what's, you know what, it's going to sound weird. <laughs> so there's a book that I'm reading right now. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It's like, right, if I can reach it. No, I can't reach it. Um, but it's, it's a book that I'm reading right now that that's kind of talking about the existence of um, slavery still now in the United States. And so I've been reading that. Uh, that's really an, an interesting book, even though I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, I'll try to get you that get you that name in case you have show notes. Um, but honestly, one of my favorite books that I actually open each time I travel is the Green Book, because the Green Book is it's a directory, but it allows you to see what still exists <gasps> of our community. Um, and how this sort of like underground railroad, like what's still there. So it's like this building used to be. A Is there a lot? Is there a lot still present and alive today? That's so if we go to the place, we have the green book, we have the address. We're like, wow. Yeah. So that's actually one of my favorite. That's why I said it's a little weird. Cause it's not like a, something that you read, but something that you experience. Um, I want to take some of the learning and what I found from the green book and actually put it into the app. Actually, in the Charlotte tour, we have there some. is a stop. One of the stops is actually from the Green Book. Wow. So it's a hotel. Um, my memory is so bad today, but it's a hotel that actually used to be um, a safe place. It no longer exists. It's still a, it's a parking lot now. Okay. But you can at least visit and know that this is Sanders Hotel. That's that was the place. So the Sanders Hotel is, is what used to, to exist. Um, but it's kind of cool to see like what still remains. And some things do. Um, I mean, I would love at some point to see funding go to um, helping to keep some of these places alive yes. or like improving them. Yes. I think that would be something really cool. Um, not something I can focus on right now, but maybe in the future, or maybe it's an inspiration for somebody else. But that's probably like my favorite book because it's like a yeah, yeah. it's like a treasured hunt you know <laughs> that's kind of what it feels like yeah and it's so important it's so important that that something that was in history that 
that is still there it's like we need to look after it we really do and something that was a sense of safety a sense of love and reassurance that is that we as a community are like okay we we look after it as well um what is your favorite movie oh my favorite movie is actually a limited series it might not be my favorite ever but it's one that i could go watch right now it's the haunting of hill house (laughs) I love horror. <laughs> okay, nice. I like it. Horror uh, makes me happy. If you had a billboard on the side of the highway, which I know you're you're working on it, what would it say? Oh man, my guess for this particular billboard, I don't know exactly what we're gonna put up, but my first thought was, um, "Your flag is racist." and then that takes them to a oh, website. Link. With that breaks down the history of the flag um, and then how we also counter the narrative that says it's just history and then we counter the narrative that says that it's infringing on free speech um, so that people understand like what we're saying and not just dismissing it like, um, oh, you're just the left wing, the liberals mm-hmm. for this. And I'm like, you know, it's not because if if someone were to threaten you on a regular basis, um, you probably would feel differently. Yeah. You know, if the tables were turned and you and and there were symbols and things that were threatening to you, you probably would 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 stand up um, and speak out. So, um, to give to as an example, so let's say there was a symbol that represented raping women. Yeah, and you had a daughter. If you saw that on the highway, you would have a problem with it. Of course. 100%. So we have to consider the symbolism of this flag in a similar way, because we cannot forget that black women were continuously raped by their um, overseers and their um, enslavers. So Even, this is what we're talking about. We're not just taking. We're not just talking right. about people being enslaved and being abused. This is also part of that that narrative as well. Even in, um, I'm currently in Medellin, Colombia, but if you go to Cartagena, because it's a, like a pool and it's um, the Spanish that had um, black slaves, they would separate downstairs, the basement, they'll separate the most beautiful females and they would come down and take them during the night. And, and you go to mm. these houses and they share these stories and it's like knowing that these places are still real today. Like you, everything's there, the architecture, the way it was built, the division. So it's just knowing that by educating ourselves, by learning, by what is the real information out there? What is it that we need to tap into? What is it that we need to learn in order so that things are not done in a different way in modern day, like uh, with Brooklyn, the example of Brooklyn, um, what's happening with the businesses today? How can we protect business owners, entrepreneurs? And it's like, how can we relocate them safely so that history is not repeated as well in any type of way? Because sometimes it can be disguised in ways that we're like, oh, okay, this is normal. No, it's not normal. Right, right, absolutely. Um, Kimberly, out of all the information you've consumed, out of all the education you've had, out of everything you have seen, what, where it be spiritual, historically, anything, what has been the most life changing? Mm. Wow. Honestly, I don't have, I can't point to one thing uh, off the top of my head right now, but I will say, um that any that every story that I bring forward is one that surprises me. 
it's one that changes my perspective in a way that I had not thought. I think one thing that was very disappointing for me, and I've seen this story over and over, is that the United States has laws to protect itself, to insulate itself from being responsible for crimes that it commits outside of the country. Oh. And that is the most disappointing because remember when we talked about Guatemala and the people who were um, giving, given sexually transmitted diseases, they have no recourse because it was committed outside of the United States. So these organizations that came into their country under the U.S. banner that harmed them could do so and can continue to do anything else they want without repercussions. So that that was like, how do you how do you fight the whole United States? How do you fight the federal government? How do you get justice for these people that have zero recourse like there isn't they have no one that they can complain to how do you go higher than basically the president of the country you can't there's nothing you can do and that was probably the most disappointing because i kept reading about the crimes against humanity that our country has done to others and still does you know there are stories of um you know chocolate farms in brazil um and you know, other places as well that people are farming cacao at gunpoint, you know? (gasps) And I mean, it's just like nuts. Like, (laughs) and and then it also goes into, you know, parts of Africa and, you know, the Ivory Coast and Ghana and people, living people who have brought forth cases against the United States for how they were treated and enslaved um, to produce chocolate. Um, and they have no recourse. It keeps getting kicked out. It's like, well, this wasn't done on our soil on American soil. So you can't sue us. And it's like, I, I, in that I feel hopeless about these stories, but Mm -hmm. there are so many, you know, I've, I've read stories about how there are millions of people who in the world who are enslaved right now, And some of them are enslaved at the hand of the United States doing dirty work in other countries. And it's, it's heartbreaking. So I think that that changed my perspective in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, And, but I can't dwell there because there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I like to focus on the things that I can change um, and then, you know, hope and pray for change everywhere else. Oh, thank you so much, Kimberly. Thank you so much for coming on Gentle Touch. Thank you for sharing your light and taking the time to just follow your curiosity and just do the work you're doing because we need people like that in society. We need people to educate, to inspire, and to heal. And like you say, to, to say it in the way they say it because that's how we become authentic. That's how that's how we feel like it's real. Like it's not shoved under us. This is a curriculum. You need to learn this to pass the exam in order to ace this. If not, then you can carry on and, and you need to do this. No, it, it comes real. And as well, what you're doing with the app, I think is so beautiful. So beautiful. Yeah. And especially like bringing things to light, like the green book. And it's just knowing that if we know and we learn and we educate ourselves on the buildings, on just 
any little bit because it it affects the people around us if in a conversation you mention oh hey like we're in charlotte today did you know this was a safe place or did you know so that means it sparks curiosity in the community in the people around us and i feel like by that we were able to raise the vibration of the world and just educate and heal others and bring light to the trauma of the people and just heal ourselves in a way and as well to not repeat the trauma to not repeat everything that's going on because it's like then we haven't evolved in spiritually, emotionally, physically. So yeah, thank you, Kimberly. Thank you so much, Alejandra. You're very welcome. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast and found this podcast useful. If you did, be sure to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening and joining Gentle Touch. I'll see you in the next episode. Want to get in touch? Feel free to send me a DM on Instagram. Link is in the description. Be sure to follow and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you are on. Stay tuned and keep listening. Much love.